Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the chance, Father, as always, to rest in Your Word. And Father, we, we know that as we have a day filled with activities that draw us away from You or from Your Word or from an opportunity to witness to You or to the truth, things, Father, that seem so important in the moment, we know, Lord, that what You have planned for us and Your purpose for us may be very different. And so we return now, Father, to Your Word so that we may come to know that purpose. We may understand, Father, Your truth and we may put it to work and we may follow You. Father, tonight as we return into Luke, I pray that as we look at these difficult things of the end, that we would have a heart, Father, to reflect on the fact that You would tell us these things in advance and give us this knowledge. And we pray, Father, that we would be worthy of that privilege and we might put it to good work. And we thank You, Father, that the Holy Spirit may teach all of us in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to jump back into Jesus' most revealing description of the end. As we studied last week in chapter 21 of Luke, we were looking at the discourse, that famous discourse called the Olivet Discourse. And uh, probably other than Jesus' revelation to John in the book of Revelation, this, this is really the most revealing description of the end that Jesus provides in all the gospel or all of, all of the Bible for that matter. And if you remember, we introduced this teaching last week by noting the general outline of the teaching and, and how Jesus approached the various questions that he was asked. You remember we had a handout last week, and if you didn't get it, you can always find it online. It's available on the verse-by-verse ministry website. But in that handout, you notice that we looked at how the questions that Jesus had been asked by the apostles came in essentially three forms, three principal questions, and that there was a fourth question that Jesus chose to answer, though the disciples didn't choose to ask it. And we also noted that among the two gospel writers that we looked at, Matthew and Luke, they each chose to record uh, different aspects of those questions. Luke recorded the question of when will these things occur and what will be the signs of these things, meaning the things of the fall of the temple. Jesus had just left the temple, as you remember last week in the beginning of chapter 21, and he had observed Uh, or some of the disciples had observed the beauty of the temple, and that had caused Jesus to mention that the temple one day would fall, not one stone would be left upon another. And then as he uh, left the temple and retreated that night to the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and asked, well, when will these things occur and what will be the signs of these things, meaning the, the things of the temple's fall and the temple's destruction. But Matthew records in his account of the Olivet Discourse, that there were some other questions that the disciples asked as well. A question about what will be the sign of your coming, and a third question about what will be the signs of the end of the age. And we covered all that last week. We looked at several of the questions last week. In fact, we noted in that handout that the way Christ answered those questions was actually different than the way they were asked originally by the disciples. For example, Luke records that one question I mentioned, when will the temple be destroyed? What will the signs be of that coming destruction? And, it, it, and by the way, it may sound like two questions, but really in the way Jesus answers it, in the way he treats it, as a, uh, the way he weaves the answers together, he really treats it as a single question. And Matthew, on the other hand, as we said, records the other two. What are the signs of your coming? What are the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus answers those as well, and Luke records those answers even though he does not record the questions themselves in his discourse. He began, when we looked at the verses last week, in that discourse by answering that question that none of the disciples had asked. A question that goes something like this. What are not signs of the end? 
And we noted last week that he answered that question because it is a good question to answer, even though it wasn't asked, because it will help clarify in the minds of the disciples what is a sign and what is not a sign. It will help them keep straight what is really going to happen. And then we move from there into question number three, which we studied last week. That question is, what are the signs of the end of the age? And we looked at that from the standpoint of what Matthew had to say as well as Luke. Today we're going to pick back up where we left off last week, but we're actually going to reread a few verses. We're going to reread from verse 12 in Luke 21, which is the answer to question number one, the question that only Luke recorded, the question being, what about those events surrounding the fall of the temple? So let's pick up there again in chapter 21 of Luke, verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands upon you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now we took note that these verses began last week with that very important opening phrase, but before all these things. And the reason that phrase was so important to us was it became an essential clue in helping us realize that at this point in the discourse, Luke is actually moving backward in time. He's actually reflecting the fact that Jesus, in the way he chose to answer these questions, in the order that he chose to answer them, he had first addressed issues of the end of the age. He had essentially moved forward all the way to the end of the present age. And given the signs that that age was coming to an end, those signs of earthquakes and famines and world wars, which we talked about last week. But now as he introduces the next section, question number one, in other words, answering question number one, he goes to this but before all things introduction, which clearly indicates to the reader we are now backing up, not just from the end of the age itself, but actually backing up all the way to before any of the signs begin, all the way back into a day to come, not long after he left the earth, not long after Jesus was crucified. Now, I want you to take note of the events that Jesus actually describes here, and that will further confirm for you that we're looking at the events that surround the fall of the temple. It will confirm for you that we're talking about question number one. What are the signs and the events surrounding the fall of the temple? For example, he says to the disciples, you will be persecuted. Well, persecution for, for the faith is, is hardly a unique event to the disciples or even to the day of the temple's fall. The persecution of the Christian faith and of Christians generally has gone on virtually unstopped since the time of Christ first walking the earth. It's a constant feature of the church in one place in the world or another. He says they will be dragged into synagogues and into prisons. Well, the first comment being relatively not unique, being relatively common, that second comment, that's a far more unique comment. You know, the disciples experienced this. The disciples were dragged into synagogues and dragged into prisons. And the reason that's a unique comment is that the idea that you would be dragged into a synagogue is a direct connection to the Jewish leadership of their day. Men who had authority in the nation of Israel, and certainly a synagogue being a unique Jewish house of worship, we're talking here about a Jewish situation, Jewish leadership, Jewish adversaries. These men, opposed to the gospel and opposed to what the disciples were preaching, 
brought them into synagogues for the purpose of condemning them or for justice or for persecution. The opportunity to be dragged into a synagogue because of your faith was an opportunity that ended in A.D. 70. Because it was after A.D. 70 that the nation of Israel no longer existed as a physical nation on the earth for many, many centuries afterward. So until that time, synagogues existed and the nation of Israel certainly had men of authority uh, within its borders who could do this thing, dragging the believer into synagogues. But after it was complete, after A.D. 70 and the nation of Israel was scattered, it became increasingly less the case that there were synagogues in practice or that there was authorities in those synagogues who could drag Christians into the synagogue. Now, the prisons were far more common and they continue even to this day. So the part of that statement that is not so unique, the prisons, is certainly something that the disciples experienced, but then again, so have Christians in the centuries afterward. But the notion of being dragged into a synagogue, that would have been relatively unique, relatively specific, something that the disciples, more than any other generation, probably could expect to experience. And so this helps type the time, or locate this event in time, to the years immediately after Jesus' resurrection. Finally, he says, before kings... And before governors, you will be dragged and you will be persecuted. He goes on to say, of course, that they will suffer death in verse 16. They will be hated because of Christ's name in verse 17 and so on. You know, as Jesus is revealing these these future events to his friends, to these men that he spent time with for so many years already, and he's telling them about their future, I want to give you something to think about in the moment. And perhaps you've had this experience, maybe not, I know I have. Have you ever stopped and asked God, why don't you tell me more about my future? Why don't you give me more insight into what it is you're planning for me and what it is you expect to bring me in my life? You know, like Abram. You know, Abram was sitting in Ur, and God came to him and said, go to a place I will show you. And we know Abram in faith took that step and walked. But don't you think Abram would have appreciated knowing the big picture? You know, maybe he would have said to God, why don't you just tell me where we're going, and then I can get there directly. Why do you have to keep it a secret? Or like Joseph. You know, as Joseph was thrown into jail by Potiphar, as he sat in that jail cell in Egypt, you know know he must have been thinking, why did this happen to me, God? And don't you think it would have been helpful for him to have had the insight at that point in his life to know that not too long in the distant future he was going to become one of the most powerful men in the world, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt? Don't you think that would have been a comfort to him as he sat in that prison? So when we reach these moments in our lives, we often turn to God and say, if you would just tell me what you're going to do, it would be so much better. Well, I wonder what the disciples would say to us now if they were here today and we could ask them, how did it feel when Christ revealed to you the future that he said he had for you? How do you think they felt to learn that they were going to be persecuted? that they were going to have family members turn on them, that they were going to be thrown into prisons and that they would face death, a martyr's death. I guess to some extent maybe they were reassured. Maybe in the moment those events began to occur, they could look back on what Jesus said and feel some reassurance that this is all according to plan. This is all what God has intended. And, and of course, that might have provided some degree of reassurance. It gave them the confidence to know that God was still in control. But I also wonder if it didn't create a tremendous amount of trepidation and fear. You know, as they went through their life with this commission to spread the gospel and to found the early church, I wonder if they ever thought back to his words and questioned whether or not to follow through on his commission to them, to go essentially into the teeth of the lion, 
to know that what they were doing, in obedience to what they had been told, was in fact going to lead to their death. You know, that's really true for any Christian. All of us, as we follow the Lord in obedience to His Word and in the instructions He gives and into the calling He puts on our lives, we all have the potential to face harm. In fact, He essentially assures the Christian that persecution is the natural result of the Gospel. That the hatred of the enemy will only be increased against us as we testify to Christ in a world that is uh, a lost and dying world, into a world that does not know the truth and, and will not receive it by and large. And yet we do it anyway, for that is the command we've been given. And it will bear fruit according to God's plan. But when you know in advance a confirmation of the kind that the disciples received, that they will in fact receive these persecutions and these martyrs, um, deaths of martyrs, I wonder how much they had a burden because of that. I wonder how tough it was. And if maybe that doesn't help us appreciate the grace that is actually shown to each of us by virtue of the fact that God is not inclined to reveal our future to us. It's an interesting thing to consider. We can still rest in the knowledge that God is bringing us to the end that He has determined best suits His plan and His glory and ultimately us as well. Now, Jesus does give these men a glimpse of how the events that will come to their lives ultimately brings Him glory. He does give them a little bit of insight in these verses about why it is that some of these things will happen. He says they're going to be before kings and governors and that moment is going to bring them an opportunity to testify to Christ. Well, in that alone, we see some of the wisdom of what God is doing. You know, if these men had knocked on the doors of these kings or governors and if these kings or governors in that moment had not been particularly concerned or bothered by the disciples or by the message of Christendom, they probably would never have reached even earshot of these important men in their day. They would never have even been allowed in the door. But because they appeared to pose a threat to these men, to the authority of the nations that they were in, to the kings and governors of these nations, because of that perceived threat, they were not just taken captive and brought in the door, they were brought face to face with these men, we're told. Their persecutions would give opportunity for testimony. And in that, we see the wisdom of God at work. Where they would never have otherwise had opportunity to testify, they were given that opportunity. And then God says something very interesting. Through the Scripture, as Christ talks to these men, they are told specifically not to prepare for this moment. In fact, the wording is even stronger than that. If you look back at the verses we've already read, in verse 14, He's telling them, make up your minds. It's a very active a very positive, kind of active way of saying this. Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand. Consciously decide, consciously choose not to spend the time and effort you might otherwise have spent preparing for this moment. And that's a very natural thing for them to have done. If they know that this moment is coming, and if you and I were them and you had been told, you're going to stand before a king one day, and it's going to give opportunity for you to testify... If the, if the verses had stopped there, tell me you would not have spent many weeks and months afterward thinking about that moment, preparing for what you will say, practicing it perhaps, and building up the courage to do it. I mean, we do that in our own lives now. If we think we're about to go out and have an opportunity to witness to a family member or a stranger at work or whomever, if we sense that moment coming or if we plan to, to instigate it ourselves, we practice it. We prepare for it. In fact, doesn't Scripture tell us to do that? Elsewhere, in 1 Peter, in Peter's first letter, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone 
who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. I mean, that, that statement from Peter, and by the way, Peter is one of the men sitting on the Mount of Olives, hearing Christ tell him, do not be prepared beforehand to give this testimony. And yet, in his own letter back to the faithful in the church, he says, always, always be ready to make a defense to those who would ask for uh, an account of the hope that is within you. It seems like a completely contradictory set of instructions. I mean, Peter's instructions would suggest to me that we're expected, generally speaking, to be ready with a testimony anytime we might have opportunity to give that testimony. And of course, the testimony here, the testimony as Peter describes it, that hope that is within you, it's a testimony to the gospel message, to Christ and to the truth of the gospel, to the fact that you have a greater hope than the world now to the fact that you now know something about what your future holds because of your faith in Christ that the rest of the world does not share in. That is a hope that is self-evident to those who are around you. If you live the faith you believe, others will have a a sense of you being different, of, of having a new hope, something they don't share in. And they will sometimes ask you about that hope. And Peter says, when that moment occurs, you should be ready because that is the opportunity God has placed you on the earth, placed the church on the earth for the moments when they happen in your life and in my life to give an account to what Christ has done for you and I. Well, if Peter is encouraging us to do that, and yet Jesus tells the disciples essentially the opposite, make no preparations in advance, how do we reconcile the two? Well, I believe the difference between these two instructions really just comes down to the circumstances of the moment and God's purpose for why the testimony takes place. You know, in the case of the disciples, their situation was going to be one of persecution. And we know that from the history of what happened to these men, they went into these places of kings and governors. They were given an opportunity to testify, yes. But we also know that those testimonies did not have the effect of actually bringing any of those kings or governors to faith. We know that because these disciples were, in fact, martyred. They were put to death. If their testimony to the kings and governors had been successful if these kings or governors had believed in their testimony, then it's only logical to conclude it would have had the effect of keeping them from their deaths. Those same men wouldn't have turned around then and ordered the execution of these disciples. But in fact, what happened, of course, is that they were executed. So it would seem, looking back on history, that whatever testimony Christ gave the disciples, it was not a testimony that resulted in uh, in converting the listener to a belief in the gospel. It did not have the effect of creating faith in the heart of those men. So what other reason could God have had? Why have these men stand before these kings and governors, given an opportunity to testify, this whole situation having been designed by God so that there would be a moment of testimony? Why do all that if the end result is not going to be faith in the hearts of these men? Well, it raises this issue that is common in Scripture, actually, that testimony by men on behalf of God, by His command, is not always for the purpose of conversion. There is a principle in the Bible, you can see it reflected, for example, in the lives of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, or you can see it reflected in the lives of many of the Old Testament prophets who were sent to the nation of Israel, that their purpose in testifying is for the purpose of declaring judgment that the testimony would be heard, but it would be rejected. And because it was heard and it was rejected, judgment is now just and sure against those people. And I believe that is the case here. I believe that what Christ is telling the disciples is, do not be prepared 
to go into that moment with a testimony of your own desire, of your own making, because I already have one prepared for those men. And that testimony will be one of condemnation. It will be witnessing against these men with the truth, even as they prepare to put you to death. And because they are willing to do that and ignore the message, they will be judged. So why does God expect the disciples to yield to him when the message is one of judgment? rather than be prepared, like he expects out of the letter from Peter, in a time of conversion, when, when someone is expressing interest in the gospel and wants to know more about it. Why is it okay to be prepared in one moment, but in the case of judgment, uh, he expects us to, to defer to him and allow him to choose the words? Much like he would do with the uh, prophets of the Old Testament, for example, where he gives them specifically the words they are to speak to the nation of Israel. Why do the two situations differ in that way? Well, I believe it's because though he has commissioned men with the purpose of bringing the good news for the sake of conversion, God has at the same time reserved for himself the mission of judgment, the role of judge. You know, the Great Commission of Matthew 28 is the place in Scripture that would direct us specifically to bring the good news to men and to be witnesses of what we have received. But elsewhere in Scripture, God consistently tells us that He reserves judgment for Himself. Things like, vengeance is mine, or leave room for the wrath of God, as Paul teaches in Romans, or just the, the, the pure teaching out of the Gospels, do not judge. The, the act of judging men in the sense of judgment for eternity is an is a act that God alone reserves for Himself. And He frankly does not give men in this age permission to carry on that role except under very specific circumstances, such as the circumstances of the disciples themselves. So the purpose of the apostles' testimony was for the purpose of judging those who would seek to destroy the gospel message and against those men, God would speak judgment to them through the disciples. Well, moving on, the remainder of these verses that I've read already, they, they just reflect further details of the persecution. And of course, there is so much we could say tonight about the persecution of the early church, the experiences of the disciples themselves and and over the years that followed in the early church and so on. I'm going to leave that discussion for another time. I think it's better that we would move on in the text tonight. But I do think it's sufficient and important to note that as we pass these verses, that that early church that the disciples were a part of and that followed in the the decades immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection, that early church was both the most persecuted church in all of history, but it was also the fastest growing and the most resilient, I believe, in all of history of the church. But by contrast, and I don't think this is a coincidence either, by contrast, the modern church, the church you and I share in today, in many ways, this church is the least tested church in history, particularly in our culture here in the West, and consequently, it seems to be the most fragile and probably the most immature spiritually. You can draw your own conclusions, but I think the connection speaks for itself. Finally, in verses 18 and 19, as we finish this section, and in answer to question number one, Jesus teaches that the disciples are going to be martyred. And this is a moment of preparation for them. So, knowing they're going to be martyred, knowing that He has just told them, you're going to die a martyr's death, what could He possibly mean by saying not a hair on your heads will perish, or that they will gain their lives by their endurance. Well, we know again that Jesus was predicting their persecution and their death, 
And since we know, in fact, that the disciples did die, most of them a martyr's death, most of them at the hands of persecution, then it has to be self-evident that Jesus is not promising that these men would avoid death during these circumstances. He's not promising that you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be dragged into synagogues and prisons and so on, but don't worry, you're not going to die. We know that's not true. And we know that's not what he means. So, it has to be a promise that goes beyond a discussion of physical life and death. After all, I mean, similarly, verse 19. Could Jesus be implying that these men are going to somehow earn something by their endurance? When he says, you will gain your lives by your endurance, is he implying that they're going to earn, let's say, uh, salvation? Could he be implying that? Well, only if we ignore the rest of Scripture. Only if we take out almost every other Bible book and ignore their contents. Only then could we come to that kind of a conclusion. Certainly we know that the Bible does not teach we earn our salvation. No more us than the disciples or vice versa. So what are they earning when they endure in this way? Well, I believe the answer comes in a simple cross-reference to the book of Revelation, because I think in Revelation, in the letters to the seven churches, there's a similar kind of experience, a time of persecution for the faithful in one of those seven churches. And in response to that coming persecution, Christ gives that church a a, a moment of encouragement in his letter to them. In In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, here's what he tells that church. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, many have looked at this particular verse out of Revelation, or perhaps the one we just read out of Luke, and have come to the wrong conclusion, perhaps. That conclusion being that this is a promise of salvation to those who endure. Which, by the way, would imply that if you don't endure... Your salvation is at risk. You could lose it, in other words. But that's a clear misinterpretation, not just of these verses, but of the whole tenure of Scripture, the whole body of Scripture itself. The crown of life is not a euphemism for salvation. It is, rather, a literal term. It means literally a reward, a crown or an award of life. And the same sense that we might have awards that have names, like the such-and-such award, the Academy Awards, the Oscars, there was a name for this award. It's called the Crown of Life. It is an award that God will provide to men, to women, who suffer through the death of a martyr, who are persecuted unto death, but remain faithful in their testimony throughout that experience. If they do so, they can expect to receive the Crown of Life. This is an eternal reward. It is a recognition given to the believer as they are brought into the kingdom, into the kingdom after death, and it is in recognition of their sacrifice in this age. It is not the reward of salvation itself. It is not some euphemism for God allowing us to remain saved or anything like that. These apostles, when, we ent- when we, you and I enter into the kingdom upon our own death and our glorification, and we run into the apostles, who I believe very much we will see and we will recognize, and we are able to to gaze upon them, they will have some visible evidence, I believe, of this crown of life. Whether it's a literal crown on their head or something else that marks them, we won't necessarily know until we get there. But this crown of life will be evident. And it will be a witness to the faithfulness that they displayed in the moment of their testing in that day. 
just as Christ promised, just as he promised to that church in the time of Revelation, in the letter from Revelation. And may we all be found as faithful in our own day of testing. Before we move forward in this chapter, I want you to take a look for a moment at the structure here again of this discourse because it's a good opportunity for us to to see how some have looked at the details of the Olivet Discourse and come away with a misunderstanding, in some cases, about what Christ is teaching. To do this, we need to go over and look at Matthew 24 again briefly. Now, if I mentioned this already, I want you to take a second look at that chart because in that chart, I want you to take note of how the questions are presented. The questions are presented first by Luke, the times and the events surrounding the temple. And then secondly, a question of Jesus' second coming. And then thirdly, a question of how the end of the age will come. And then fourth, the question that no one asked, what are not signs of the end? Jesus, in his answer, goes first to number four, telling us what are not signs. Then to number three, what are the signs of the end of the age? And now you'll notice, looking at your chart, that Luke immediately rolls into a discussion about the time surrounding the temple and its destruction. But if you look over on the left side of your chart, you'll notice Matthew doesn't cover that question at all. And, of course, we said before he doesn't cover the uh, answer because he never addressed the question itself. He just leaves that whole section out. Then both the writers finish with question number two. What are the signs of your second coming? So as you move out now from the answer given to question number one in Luke, and and we prepare to move into the last answer to question number two, if you were following this same discourse in Matthew, and if you assumed that both Luke and Matthew present the same material, you're going to run into a problem right about now. Because you're going to do a little cross-reference over into Matthew, and at about the same point in the discourse that we find ourselves in right now in Luke, Matthew goes on to a new topic. He begins to talk about the end of the age and the coming of Christ. While Luke, on the other hand, is still talking about the fall of the temple and the events surrounding that fall. Luke, at this point in our our reading of chapter 21, he's still talking about question number one. He hasn't finished talking about the fall of the temple and the events surrounding the fall. But Matthew, since he never talked about question number one, he's racing forward. He's getting ready to talk here now about number two, about Christ's return. So let's look at what we find, for example, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, at first glance, as you read these verses, you can see why somebody might assume that both Matthew and Luke are talking about the same event here. Where before in Luke, we were hearing about people being persecuted. We were hearing about enduring to the end and you will save your, your life. We heard about the, these kinds of events of persecution. We come over here to Matthew at about the same point in Matthew's discourse and we seem to find the same statements. Things like, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Things about love growing cold, people betraying one another and hating one another. All of this sounds so similar that we can immediately begin to think we're looking at the same set of circumstances. But there are some important clues that tell us that's not, in fact, the case. Luke was talking about a time back in the day of the disciples when the nation of Israel saw the temple destroyed and the nation attacked by Rome. Matthew, in the verses I just read, as we said, 
is talking here about a lead-in to the answer about Christ's second coming. So he's talking about a time we call tribulation, or the events of the end of the age. It just so happens that when the nation of Israel is attacked and destroyed by Rome, and the temple is torn down, the events of that moment are very similar as they are in the time of tribulation, just albeit on a much smaller scale. But if you're a resident in the city of Jerusalem, during the time that these events occur at the temple, from your perspective, it's going to look almost the same as what it will look like to someone who's on the earth during some of the events of tribulation. It's going to be a horrible experience. It's going to be mayhem and destruction. It's going to be uh, the temple being torn down by an enemy who's intent on killing everyone in the city. It's going to be a bad time. That would explain why some of the verses are similar. But in the detail of the verses, we can see there are differences. For example... We're told in the time of, of this event in Matthew that many fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now, if Matthew had been talking about the fall of the temple here, as Luke is in his gospel, then this statement makes no sense. Because we know that the church, as it existed in the day that the temple fell, was not a church marked by a great falling away. It was not a church marked by betrayal, by hatred. It was not a church marked by many false prophets arising or by lawlessness increasing or love growing cold. All of these features that Matthew mentions are completely opposite to what was true for the church in the day that the temple fell. So if this is the same event, if Matthew's talking about the temple just like Luke was, it would seem very odd that he would mention these kinds of traits because they're very different from what reality, from what history tells us about the nature of the church in that day. But, interestingly enough, these are the kinds of traits that we are told from elsewhere in Scripture, particularly from Paul's letter to the uh, city of Thessalonica. These are the traits that are characteristic of the church in the last days. The church of the last days is marked by great apostasy, by love growing cold. It is very much the case that these are the kinds of events that the last days will have. But maybe most importantly of all, probably more important than even these subtle details, is the last verse I read and the first verse I read from Matthew. That last verse, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Well, if the end that Matthew was talking about here is the same end that Luke is talking about in the passage we're currently looking, the, the passage about the temple and the fall of the temple, if the end here is the same end, then it would have to be the end of the temple. And I can tell you most assuredly that before that end came, the gospel had not yet been preached to all the nations of the world. The gospel had not been preached to the whole world at the time that the temple fell. In fact, the fall of the nation of Israel and the destruction of the temple was itself an event that propelled Christians outward from Judea and actually contributed to the spreading of the gospel. This cannot be the same end. It is a different experience because the events that Matthew describes it by are so different to the ones that will exist in the time of the temple fall. And then that first verse I read, Matthew 24, verse 10. At that time, many will fall away, he begins. The critical piece of that is the very beginning where he says, at that time, at that time, what time? Well, the same time that he had just been talking about in the immediately preceding verses. And what was he talking about in the immediately preceding verses? The times of the end of the age. He had transitioned directly out of a discussion of the end of the age 
And he had moved forward from that point in time to talk now about the events that surround the second coming of Christ. But now we know Luke does not go directly from one of those, from that one event to the next. He doesn't go directly from the end of the age to a discussion about the second coming. He goes backward in time. Remember how his section began? His section began with the words, but before all these things. So Luke tells you clearly in the way he records his narrative, we're going backward. We're going back in time for a moment to talk about the temple. While Matthew, on the other hand, gives you a very different kind of suggestion. He says, at that time, making clear that we're still in the end. We're still looking forward. We're still looking at a future event at the distant end of the age. These are talking about two different moments, which is where some of the confusion arises among those who see these discourses in Matthew and Luke as being parallel, when in fact they're not exactly parallel. Though the language is similar, it's similar because the events are similar. Two events can be similar and still not be the same thing, and that's what we're looking at here. But back to Luke, and continuing with question number one. Luke in 21 verse 20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now that series of verses completes the answer to question number one. That question being, give me some idea, Jesus, about what's going to happen. What are the signs and the events surrounding the fall of the temple? So we're talking here about the fall of the temple itself. And here's how that happened. He says, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem. In A.D. 66, a few short decades after Jesus died and was resurrected, the Jewish nation revolted against their Roman authorities. And this isn't the first time this has happened. If you remember a few hundred years before Christ even arrived, the Maccabees led a revolt that was successful for a period of time. But in AD 66, a new revolt occurs. And of course, the Romans aren't going to allow this revolt to go forward unchallenged. They send a man, Cestus Gallus, from Caesarea down to Judea to put down the rebellion. And he brings an army with him. And that army encircles Jerusalem. And they, they take the city siege. And the basic plan is simple. I'm going to starve out the people in that city. I'm going to work to break through the walls and the gates. And eventually, when I breach the, the protection of the city, I'm going to kill everyone inside that city and destroy it so that it will never be inhabited again. That was the Roman way of doing things. They weren't going to come in and take hostages or come in and take prisoners because then they had to find a way to feed and take care of prisoners. They might make them slave, but generally the Romans weren't big into slavery. So what you found instead was a wipe-out-all-of-them kind of strategy. So that's what was at stake for the nation of Israel in that day. They're surrounded by Cestus Gallus, and they know that if they're not successful in fending them off, they're going to die. Well, as it turned out, as Cestus was engaged in this siege of the city, some Jewish mercenaries who were not living in the city, but were in the hills and the countryside of Judea, began to attack his supply lines back to Rome, so uh, back, back to the province of Caesarea. So as he was trying to conduct his battle, he was finding his supply lines being uh, attacked and, and disrupted. 
And that was preventing him from being able to conduct the siege. So what Cestus decided to do was abandon the siege of the city temporarily and go back and defend his supply lines and secure them. And then his intention was to come back to the city and siege it again. But while he was out defending his supply lines, he was killed in battle, which required now that the Romans send somebody new back to take over to, to try to put down the rebellion and siege the city a second time. So in A.D. 68, two years later, Vespasian, a man named Vespasian, returns with another army, begins a second siege of the city. By A.D. 70, two years later, that siege had been successful in starving the nation of Israel, weakening them, and eventually breaching the walls and the gates. And when he went into the city, he murdered according to Josephus, about 1.1 million men, women, and children in the nation of Israel. And then they began to work on the temple, and they began to destroy the temple as a part of their destruction of the city. And the way they did it was particularly interesting. First, they set fire to it. Now, if you know from some of the pictures you may have in your Bibles about what the temple looked like in Jesus' day, the, Herod, the Herod's temple, it was layered in gold. Many of the artifacts inside were covered in gold. The walls were gold. There was so much gold in this temple that when they set it afire, what does this gold do? It melts. And the melting gold not only came down from the temple, but actually started to seep down into the rocks, into the stones that made up the foundation and the structure of the temple itself. Well, what was interesting about that was that the Romans weren't going to leave with all that gold still in the rocks of that temple. So they began meticulously to take apart the temple stone by stone so that they could recover the gold. And before they left the job, they had literally moved every stone in the temple. That is why it is that Jesus would say that this temple will not one stone be left upon another. Literally, that's how it came apart. These are the days Jesus describes now in the passage we just read out of Luke's Gospel. He is foretelling this event that happened in A.D. 70. Now, in response to what he has just said, as a Christian, as a faithful believer in Christ in that early church, but yet also a Jew living in Jerusalem, how are you to respond to that prophecy? Well, I want you to think about what it was like to be in that city for a moment as that siege began. The first time, as Cestus Gallus came up upon the city and began to siege it, he was there for an extended period of time. He didn't actually have to leave to go defend himself for, for quite some time. So in the months as he laid siege to that city, you don't know what's going to happen. You're worried. You're scared he's going to breach the walls. You know that if he does, you're doomed. And you're in the city, and then miraculously, it seems, he disappears. One day, you look out. The, the guards on the sentries on the top of the city walls look out, and the army's gone. The siege is over. Now, if you were a member of that city, what would you do in response to that event? What would you think, that be, what, what would you imagine has just happened? Well, from a human perspective, from someone who would just look at it with the eyes of men, you would turn to yourself and say, we just won. We defeated the Romans. They're gone. After all, you have no idea that they're coming back. You don't know history. You don't know the future yet. You had no reason to think they would be coming back. You felt you had succeeded. And if you felt that, would you leave the city at this point? Would you flee the city? I mean, the words that Jesus just gave them was this. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that her desolation is near. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He's saying that the desolation hasn't necessarily come yet, but it is near. And then he says, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then those who are in the city, you must leave. And, you, and those who are in the country you must not enter the city. 
Well, those are interesting instructions when you consider that how does a city surrounded by armies, as Jesus described it in verse 20, how does that kind of a city allow people in or out anyway? Why would someone expect to be able to leave the city if it's surrounded by armies? Or why would anyone want to go into a city that's already surrounded by armies? Well, as history now explains to us, after the initial siege, there was a window of opportunity where you could go in or out of the city. When Cestus Gallus left, but before Vespasian came back, you had an option. If you were a man or woman who believed Christ as your Messiah and knew the truth of the gospel and received these words written by Luke, then you had an opportunity. If in faith you believed this word, when you saw the armies leave, despite what common sense would tell you, despite what all the unbelievers around you would try to convince you of, you knew that when those armies had arrived, it was time to leave the city and you would take your opportunity to leave, even though it did not seem like the sensible thing to do to the common man. And on the other hand, if you did not believe the words of Christ, if you were not a believer in Him or if you were not obedient to His word, and you remained behind in the city, unbelieving that there was to be a desolation to come, then when Vespasian returned and he began the second siege, it would be too late. At that point, you couldn't leave. You couldn't escape. If you did get outside the city, you'd be caught by the Romans and executed. And when you stayed in the city, you were eventually taken up in its destruction. So it was by faith in God's word you could save yourself in that moment, but only if you read the scripture and saw the world with an eye of faith and not with the eyes of men. That was the grace that God got offered to the nation of Israel in that day. He has this fascinating and critical, important, critically important statement there at the very end in verse 24. He talks about this time to come, this, or this, this period of time called the times of the Gentiles. He said, the city of Jerusalem, from the point of A.D. 70 onward, will continue to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is, simply put, a reference to God's judgment against the nation of Israel for their disobedience, First and foremost, their disobedience to the covenant of Moses. And then secondly, for their uh, persecution and for putting to death their Messiah, for their rejection of Christ. Now the time he mentions here is a unique time in all of history that God put in place for the judgment of Israel. And actually it began earlier than the time of A.D. 70. The times of the Gentiles is something described in the book of Daniel. It's uh, pictured in chapter 2 by the statue uh, that's described in chapter 2 of Daniel. And we know that begins with Nebuchadnezzar. So as Nebuchadnezzar came down into Jerusalem and took uh, captive the nation of Israel, that began this times of the Gentiles. And it will continue until the return of Christ, until the setting up of the Messianic kingdom. So you and I today live in the midst of this period called the times of the Gentiles. And it is defined out of Scripture as a time when the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem particularly will be trampled under by Gentiles. Which is a way of saying... Gentiles will deface it, defile it, control it, own it, um, contend for it with the nation of Israel. There may be times along the way when the nation has some limited uh, access to the city or limited control, which is where they are right now, for example. They call it theirs. They have a presence in the city. They own the city. And yet they don't own it. They don't have complete control. They don't have the permission to build their temple again. They cannot control the temple mount. The land is in dispute this is not yet a city freed from the trampling of Gentiles, and nor will it be until Christ's return. 
There's a lot more we could say about this period of time, but I would again encourage you to go to our Revelation study, which is available on the website. If you really have an interest in, in some of this teaching, it's all contained in that, in that particular course of study. And then now in Luke 21, we move to question number two, that final question regarding Jesus' second coming. In verse 25, he says, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So in answer to the question, give us signs as to your second coming, he begins by noting there will be signs in heavens, in the heavens itself, the sun, the moon, the stars. These are unique signs. These are unprecedented signs. Signs that have not been seen on this scale and in this way at any point since Jesus spoke these words. So we know clearly now that at the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 21, we've moved beyond a simple dis discussion about the events of A.D. 70, because we're now talking about things that did not happen in A.D. 70, nor have they happened since. These are events yet to come. So we've moved now to question number two. He goes on to say there's going to be dismay among the nations and that the uh, whole world was going to come under this effect. Again, these are statements that simply are not true with regard to A.D. 70. That was not a global event, but this event will be global. And the powers of the heavens having been shaken, they will see the Son of Man coming. You notice how this section ends? He says, look up, lift up your, your head and look for the redemption that is drawing near. When we read earlier in Luke in chapter 21, we saw at an earlier point when he says, there will be all these events in the world to signal the end of the age. Things like earthquakes, things like famines and world wars. But then he ends that section by saying, but these are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. Here now he says, look up, your redemption is drawing near. What is the difference then between the signs of the end of the age and the signs of Jesus' second coming? Aren't they really all the same time? Why would the signs be so different? Well, what is the distinction between the two? Well, the answer is proximity. Proximity, or how close they occur to the end. The signs that mark the end of the age come over a much longer period of time. They span perhaps not just decades, perhaps hundreds of years. We're not even sure yet, of course. And so if you are seeing one of those early signs of the end of the age, like these earthquakes we mentioned or the world wars, let's say World War I, if you were to lift your head up and look for Christ's return because of World War I, you'd have spent the rest of your life with your head looking up at the sky. That was not a period of time where God expected that you would have that kind of anticipation. But on the other hand, when you see signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, look up, because the time is that close. It could be any moment. It is about to occur. You are near the end. That's the difference between the two kinds of signs that we're talking about here. Though no one will know the, the exact hour and the day of Christ's arrival, as Scripture teaches us, Neither should a believer today, or especially if you were a believer in the tribulation, you should not be surprised by his return, because you have the instructions out of Scripture to know that that return is close. And then he adds to this understanding with a parable. Verse 29, Jesus says, He told them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the leaves. 
As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus now teaches this parable to reinforce what he's just said. And he uses a picture of a fig tree. Now, as we've taught earlier in this study and as you've heard me teach elsewhere, the fig tree is a classic picture out of Scripture of the nation of Israel. So we know that by the virtue of that, that kind of tree being mentioned, he is trying to make a comparison here between what happens in the life of a fig tree or, or trees in general to what will happen in the time of Israel's history. So we begin by noting, as we interpret this uh, parable, that the nation of Israel is God's timepiece for determining the end of history. They are like a sundial. They're like the canary in the mine. If you want to understand what's going on with eschatology and God's plan for the, the world and the age now and the age to come, then you must begin by understanding how to read the signs that are given through the events in Israel and through the nation of Israel's history. God uses the nation of Israel as a timepiece. So let's look at how that comes out in this parable. It's beginning with the simple picture of a fig tree. We know that a fig tree, like, any, like most trees that are deciduous, those trees have a fall and winter pattern of losing their leaves, of going dormant, and then coming back to life, as, in a sense, in the spring and in the summer. And when it, loses its, uh, when it loses its leaves in the fall, it's going dormant. It's going into a state where it's not going to produce any fruit. And if you really think about it for a moment, when you look at a tree in that state, it looks dead. I mean, one of the things that my wife and I do every year when it comes to uh, uh, looking at our trees and our plants in our, in, our, in our yard, our landscaping, is we always try to guess which trees are going to come back to life and which ones are dead for the year because it seems like every year some bush, some tree, something dies over the winter. But you have to wait for the spring to figure out which ones are alive because in the winter they all look dead. It's the nature of, of their appearance. They appear as though they are dead. You might even mis mistake them for a dead plant. But then when the spring arrives and they begin to return to life, it looks like they've come back from the dead. You see the, the leaves coming out. You see new growth appearing. And when you see that, you know that the fruit that that tree was designed to produce is only right around the corner. Because that's the point of the tree, after all. It's a fruit tree. Its purpose is to produce fruit. And so, likewise, when the nation of Israel comes back from a state of apparent death, of a dormant state that to you and I, would actually look like it's dead. It's never there again. It's gone for good. There'll never be a nation of Israel again. When you see the nation return from that dormant period and rejoin the national stage, rejoining as if leaves coming back to life, then he says, you should know that the kingdom of God is near. You know, that should send chills up your spine because it does mine. Because what it tells us is we are privileged, in all of human history, we are privileged to be the ones who have been given the, the chance to live in the age when Christ said we would know the kingdom was near. We have reached a point in history where the sign that he said, the one sign that he said was the best example, the best means by which you could know that the kingdom of God is approaching, is that the nation of Israel would be brought back to life reconstituted as a physical, political nation somewhere on the earth in its land, and that that nation now, being in its proper place and having been reestablished, uh, is an important indicator that the end is near. You know, we often think about the apostles being privileged in their day to have walked with Christ, to have seen him physically. 
You know, in some sense, it's true that we have an even greater privilege in that we may very well be the ones who are around for the rapture. And after that, to be there as Christ returns. We will have this unique, perhaps uh, unique in all of human history, this opportunity to know the end is coming, to be a part of those end events, perhaps even to be alive for the rapture. What a privilege that would be. And then Jesus makes one of his most provocative statements. He says, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that statement has led to endless speculation among teachers in Scripture. And it's because we're not quite sure which generation he's talking about. Which generation will not pass away? And what things is he referring to? Well, we know that if he had meant the generation that actually heard his words in the day that they lived, meaning the disciples, the apostles themselves, if that was the generation that he had meant would not pass away until all these things take place, well, then these statements would make no sense. His discourse would fall apart at that point because we know these events, self-evidently, did not take place before the disciples died, before the apostles left the earth. The heavens were never in turmoil, for example. We never saw those signs take place. We never saw the, the, the other events that he described in those verses take place. We never saw men fainting from fear and expectations of, of, of dismay and so on. Those things never took place in the day Jesus, in the days that those, men's, those uh, disciples lived on earth. So they cannot be the generation. So what would the other possibility be? Well, the only other possibility is that it would be the generation who would be alive to see the events themselves begin. It is a way of saying that once these events kick off, they're not going to take very long. The end will come very quickly after these events begin to show themselves to the earth. And what events are we talking about? It's the same things. What, what things does he mean when he says, before all these things occur? It's the things of verse 28 earlier. In other words, the generation that witnesses the beginning of the tribulation will be the same generation to see the end. Now, that certainly does not guarantee that individually, every man, woman, and child who sees the beginning will still be alive to see the end. We know that's not true. But it means that, that, that after that generation sees those events begin, they will culminate in a very short period of time before another generation, in other words, could come along in history. By the way, this is in perfect keeping with what we know of this period of tribulation as it's described by Daniel, both in Daniel's book, uh, chapters uh, 2 and 7 as well as in Daniel chapter 9. Then Luke concludes verse 21, chapter 34, with these words from Christ. He says, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert all, at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Completing his answer to question number two. Well, these final commands regarding this time... You know, if you looked at them just on their face, you could assume that they are simply a continuation about his comments around the days of his second coming. That, that these statements he just made are still a part of question number two. That, that might be an easy thing for you to assume. Some of the statements he makes seem to suggest that. But as I read them, and in light of what's been said before, I, I think the interpretation should be a little different here. I don't think he's talking simply about what should be true for those who live in the days before His second coming. I believe this is, these statements are meant to be interpreted as statements for all Christians in all of time to follow, 
including the disciples. And I think it's true for this reason. If you were a disciple, if you were the apostles when you heard these words spoken originally, what is it you would be expected to do with them? And by these words, I mean the words earlier in this discourse. All of the questions Jesus just answered. All that he told us about the coming age and about the second coming itself. What would the disciples and the apostles be expected to do with that information? I mean, they're not going to be alive for those moments on the earth. They're not the ones for whom those words were spoken, were they? Neither were, they the word, neither were these words spoken necessarily for the ones who would follow in the next generation or the generation after that or the generation after that. Perhaps even for you and I, we may not be alive to see these events occur. And if so, what are we to do with these words? What is the purpose of the Olivet Discourse for all those Christians who have lived and died and not seen these events actually take place? Well, I believe verses 34 through 36 that we just read were given so that we would know what to do with those events. Because in light of the seriousness of Jesus' purpose, and in light of our role as disciples in following Him, and in light of this coming judgment that He describes in the Olivet Discourse, we should be all the more serious in our purpose during these days. We should not be weighed down with dissipation. That's, that's frivolous activity, wasting our energy and time. We should not be weighed down with drunkenness, with the worries of this life. Things that come upon us in this world that distract us from the ministry God has given us or the call He's given us in the Great Commission. Because He says, if we do so, the end may come as a surprise. But what end is He talking about? Well, I don't believe He's talking, strictly speaking, about the end of the age, about His second coming. I think He's talking about the end that comes for you and I, no matter how it comes. The end of death, let's say, of our physical death. Or the end of the, the rapture, were we to be alive to experience it. Or, in the case of some, his second coming. For no matter how the end comes, it will be the same for all after it happens. We will stand before the Son of Man, as he points out, and we will need to stand before him to give an account of what we did. And if we are involved in dissipation in this life, if we are absorbed by the worries of this life, and we come into that moment, and in that moment we recognize, oops, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Oops, I've lost my opportunity. I never thought this moment would come. I hadn't given it much thought. I didn't realize my time was about to run out. I never expected to die so soon. And in that moment, we're put to the test as we stand before the Son of God. It will be too late to go back and fix what we wish we could fix. And so he is calling all disciples, all Christians with these three verses, to a seriousness of purpose, to not trying to wish our lives to be better after the fact, but to make them better in light of our call and to God's glory now to make the best of the time He's given us so that when we stand before Him in that moment, He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my glory. And then He ends with that comment, pray at all times, desire the strength to escape these things and to stand before the Son of Man because for all Christians, no matter when you live, no matter what circumstances you face, no matter how you would meet your end, we are to pray, we are to desire strength, we are to desire to stand before the Son of Man with much to offer. For the apostles and for the later disciples in their day, it meant pray for the strength to escape the judgment coming for the city of Jerusalem in its day of, of destruction. And perhaps for you and I today, it would mean prayer to escape the collateral events that are likely to hit us even as the coming judgment approaches. You know, some of the events that mark the end of the age, earthquakes, famines, and world wars, they have collateral damage. We could be caught up in that, so we would pray to avoid it and pray the strength to escape it. 
But for the saints of the tribulation, clearly these statements have particular meaning. It is prayer to persevere until the end of tribulation. We're going to end the chapter there tonight because the last two verses of chapter 21 really work better as part of an introduction to chapter 22, which we will begin next week. So we'll end there tonight. Let's go to prayer to our Father. Dear Heavenly Father, may we have the seriousness of purpose you have called us to. May we be focused, Father, on the ministry you've given us. May we not be carried away by the cares, pleasures, concerns, worries, riches of this life. Guide our hearts, Father. Give us a seriousness of purpose. And with the words you've taught us with tonight by your, by your word, through the gospel, may we have a renewed commitment to serve you as you call us to. And if it be your will, Father, I pray, we would be called back here again next week to continue this study. In Jesus' name, amen.